The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today to help us do that is Dr. Phil Howard. He is an associate professor of community food and agriculture at Michigan State University, where his research focuses on visualizing the food system, specifically with infographics. And we'll learn more about that. But I think we've been witness to fewer and fewer firms making decisions about the food we eat. So in other words, it seems like we have many choices. I call this the illusion of choice in the marketplace. But really what you've illustrated, Dr. Howard, is that we've had this consolidation of our food system and our seeds. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, you received your Ph.D. in rural sociology at the University of Missouri, working under Dr. Bill Heffernan, where you became aware for the first time, perhaps, of this consolidation. Is that correct? Yeah, I was just a typical consumer before that. I really didn't know uh, what what was behind all those labels in the supermarket. And it was quite a shock uh, working with Bill Heffernan and Mary Hendrickson to see just how consolidated the food system had become. And what led you to take what you learned and put it into graphic style? It was kind of accidental. I, in fact, while working with Bill and Mary, found uh, uh, came across a graphic that the Pioneer Seed Company had put together showing consolidation in the seed industry, and they used this visual approach, and it really resonated with me. It's, I think the majority of us, um, uh, you know, are, are visual learners, and we can take in more information with our eyes than we can with with any of our other senses. So uh, I just kind of started copying that because there are so many industries where this is occurring. Uh, started applying it to a lot of different industries. Uh huh. Well, it's fascinating, and I agree. I think that we can hear something and we can even read statistics, but when we see it visually on paper, for me, it pops out and it makes total sense. But I'd like to back up for just a moment, and I think we need to bring our listeners around the table to understand your definition of a food system. What do you mean when we talk about consolidation in the food system? Well, I I describe a food system as all the steps in producing food, getting it to our plate, and disposing of it. So it could be production, processing, distribution, uh, disposable food waste, and, um, you know, Bill Heffernan talks about our food system as being shaped like an hourglass. Mm-hmm. So in the United States, at the top, you have just 2 million farmers. At the bottom, you have 300 million people who eat food. But in between, there's that neck of the hourglass that's very narrow. And that for that food to get from the farmers to people who eat, uh, it has to pass through the hands of a much smaller number of people. Mm-hmm. And that, that neck of the hourglass is getting smaller all the time. Yeah. So what was the first food infographic you tackled? Uh, The organic industry. This is an industry where um, a lot of consolidation started occurring in the late 90s, and, you know, people knew about it, but until you actually visualize it and see the scope, 
uh, see just how many dozens and dozens of firms have been acquired by major corporations and how few independent firms have remained independent, um, you really don't have a good sense of what's, what happened. Mm-hmm. And there was just an article about your work in the organic industry in The Cultivator in the fall 2012 issue of The Cultivator, which is the newsletter from the Cornucopia Institute, which is an organic industry watchdog that's based in Wisconsin. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting about that article was that you describe both the benefits and the challenges of this consolidation. So let's talk about some of the benefits. Yeah, in the organic industry in particular, um, having a lot of big companies like Walmart involved, you know, there are economies of scale that have uh, reduced costs for consumers. Um, you know, these incredible distribution systems that have made organic food more accessible. Um, you know, any any place in the country you can access organic food, which it wasn't the case 20 years ago. Uh, you know, and they they have the resources to contribute to research and education and marketing, which are increasing the number of acres in organic food production. So we're reducing the use of synthetic pesticides as as more and more uh, farms are converting to organic. Mm-hmm. I remember interviewing Gary Hirschberg about this very same topic. You know, when he brought Stonyfield yogurt into Walmart, a lot of people raised their eyebrows and said, hey, you know, you're selling out, you're going into Walmart. And he said, well, not not really. Actually, we're going to make our organic yogurt available to more consumers and we're going to just increase the amount of acres and the amount, the gallons of milk and yogurt that are available to consumers that has been produced organically. So absolutely, there are benefits. What are the challenges? Oh, well, on that point, I mean, Gary Hirschberg has had to start sourcing uh, dairy products from New Zealand, for example. There there wasn't enough supply for him to, to go right into Walmart. So uh, I think one of the challenges is that um, when you focus so much on organic, some of the other ideals that aren't embodied in that standard kind of fall by the wayside. Um, things like producing food locally, uh, adequate wages and working conditions for uh, farmers and other people who are involved in food production, excessive packaging, all of these things are, are problems that are not solved by just increasing the amount of organic food. Mm-hmm. And you also bring up a really good point in that when these smaller organic companies are bought out by larger firms, and you give the example in the newsletter of Cascadian Farms, the money goes to General Mills, which hasn't been such a happy player when it comes to Proposition 37 in California and GMO labeling. In fact, they actively opposed it, and that's something that most organic consumers want. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you don't know who you're really supporting with your purchases, you don't know uh, what kind of political system you're supporting. And, you know, a lot of those big names that are hidden behind those organic food brands were, you know, trying to stop a proposition that would have uh, let people know uh, what was in their food. Yeah. This is why I love the graphics, because really consumers have very little way to know about those relationships without a big picture approach. So, for example, you know, you might go into the supermarket and think, well, I'll buy organic tea. I'll buy honest tea. And then you find out, oh, wait, that's made from Coca-Cola. Should I buy it or not? What do you think about that? Well, I, I always say it depends on your values. I mean, if your your big issue is uh, reducing synthetic pesticides, 
then maybe there's no issue with supporting Coca-Cola. But if you have other ideals, uh, if you don't, if you want to know if you're eating genetically engineered ingredients or not, then you don't want to support Coca-Cola. Or if you're if you're interested in, uh, you know, reducing the amount of uh, fossil fuel use in your food, then you don't want something that's produced by Coca-Cola and shipped all over the planet. Mm-hmm. I found myself in a real predicament around the Proposition 37 issue. Uh, personally, I did not want to support companies ultimately that were trying to keep the consumer from knowing if their food product contained a GMO ingredient. And I found that my choices in the supermarket were narrowed considerably. Will there come a time when maybe everything is owned by a big corporation? Probably not. I mean, if there are some uh, independent firms that have made the very principal decision to remain independent. Mm-hmm. And it's quite remarkable, you know, some of them have turned down uh, tens of millions of dollars, uh, you know, in per- that they would personally get if they were sold out. Uh, and and a lot, for a lot, of, a lot of reasons, it's, uh, you know, ideological and a commitment to organic that, that they see the big companies don't have. They don't want to sell their company and have the, have it be watered down, which which they've seen with a lot of their competitors that have sold out. So, you know, I have on my website a list of a couple dozen brands that are, are still independent, and they're fortunate that they were pioneering organic brands, and they, they've established themselves to the point where you know, it's still tough, but, but they're able to stay in business. Uh, for people who are just starting out, it's much harder to get on the shelves when you're competing against a, a Nestle or a, a, a ConAgra. Yeah, absolutely, because there's also the whole idea of where products are located in the supermarket. There's that whole other snarly issue for consumers to navigate through, and so maybe some of the smaller brands might not be as visible. They might not be placed on an end cap, for example. They don't have the marketing dollars behind them, so it really puts consumers in a a buyer-beware situation. Yeah, and it's uh, uh, for a lot of small companies, they can't even get onto the shelves of supermarkets because you know, this, this isn't very well known, but a lot of supermarkets charge slotting fees. And it's very secretive. It's hard to find out how much they charge. But uh, we do know, for example, uh, a small supermarket chain in Florida is going to charge a small pickle company uh, tens of thousands of dollars just to get their products on the shelves. Hmm. So do you know the end of the story with the pickle company? Did they start selling at a, a farmer's market? Or what are the alternatives for small food businesses? Well, yeah, that's the problem is that you can sell at a farmer's market. You can sell direct. You could probably sell at some local retailers, particularly if they're locally owned. Uh, a natural foods cooperative, for example, is a great place to find locally produced products. But to get to that next level, to expand your distribution, you have to go through food distributors, and that industry has also become very consolidated. Um, They have a lot of power. They're very difficult to deal with if you're just starting out and and trying to get on the shelves. Now, I want to just go over some of the other infographics that you've got because they're really fascinating. And the one I think, well, maybe I should ask you this question, which of all the consolidated studies you've done troubles you the most? I would say the seed industry because mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, it's so key. I mean, it's the foundation for so much of our food, and it's it's consolidated so rapidly. I mean, 20 years ago, Monsanto wasn't even in the seed industry. 
Now it's their biggest source of revenue. They've made uh, more than 80 acquisitions in, in just a little over 10 years, some of them at, at uh, prices of uh, well over a billion dollars. Uh, and, you know, they're paying those prices because they know how key it is and how, how profitable it can be to, to dominate uh, the global seed supply. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think that even the local food movement, which I support wholeheartedly, I think that sometimes it can be a smokescreen for some of these larger corporations to get their hands involved. So, for example, there's going to be a small school garden. Isn't that wonderful? And, oh, by the way, Monsanto's donating the seeds. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they would directly donate the seeds. Um, you know, they have so many brands mm-hmm. um, that it would be through a subsidiary like Seminus. And, you know, so they wouldn't even have to, you know, Monsanto has such a bad negative image right? Uh, that, that they would probably prefer to donate seeds through one of the smaller brands that mm-hmm. people don't know is associated with them. Exactly. That's the dilemma. And that's why your infographics are so wonderful. And I'm going to just, I know our consumers who are listening are wondering, where can I see this? So it's kind of a tricky website. You can either Google Phil Howard plus Michigan State University, or you can go to www.m, as in Michigan, su.edu backslash, and then there's that funny little squiggly mark called an Attildi, Howard P. And we'll make sure that that website is available on our radio station website too, Dr. Howard. So we'll be sure to get our listeners involved. And I should remind everyone, if you're just joining us, we are talking to Dr. Phil Howard, and he is at Michigan State University, where he studies the consolidation of the food system, and he does so using infographics so that we can visually see who owns what companies and what individual names are really owned by much bigger corporations? When I was looking at this, I thought to myself, where are the antitrust laws? Is this not a violation where you've got two, three, four major players buying up the market? Yeah, not anymore. I mean, it used to be on the beer industry, for example. I talk about how in the late 50s, the 10th largest brewery in the country uh, wanted to acquire the 18th largest, and that would have resulted in a combined market share of uh, less than 5%. And the Supreme Court overturned that proposed merger. But the way those antitrust laws have been interpreted uh, have, has changed really dramatically uh, in the last 30 years. You know, Part of the reason is that the, you know, those cases are decided by federal judges, and one thing the industry has done, they didn't like the way the antitrust laws were being applied in the 1970s, so they started sending these federal judges on junkets to places like Florida and Arizona, and in between rounds of golf, they would be educated by University of Chicago economists who would explain that uh, consolidation was not bad, that it was actually good for consumers. So it's very tough to, um, you know, to win an antitrust case these days. Do you have any suggestions? I mean, I can only assume that when your students learn about this, are they not a bit upset? Oh, definitely, yeah, and a little depressed. Yeah. Um, it's hard to know, you know, where we can actually, you know, mobilize to, to have some change. Um, you know, one thing that happened in the last few years at the, is that the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Department of Justice had some joint hearings on these issues in agriculture, the fact that these companies were so big and so powerful, 
And, you know, a lot of farmers kind of risked, you know, their livelihood by speaking out against this. And in the end, the Department of Justice said, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. All these problems, you know, we agree that they're, they're real problems, but the way the laws are being interpreted right now, there's nothing we can do about it. Hmm. So when you're talking to your students and they're enthused about making change for good for their future, what can we do as communities, as professionals who are, are educating students and consumers about how to maybe make some inroads, what can we do? Well, we can uh, create alternatives. You know, organic started out as this, this tiny movement, and, you know, sure, now big corporations are involved, but there are other things that are just as small right now that, that, that can make a difference. Uh, community gardens and community-supported agriculture, you know, buying foods that are, um, you know, unprocessed. You know, it, the, the best way to avoid these big corporations is to, if you can't grow your own food, is to buy it unprocessed, you know, preferably directly from a farmer. I had to have those direct relationships. and But just, you know, making yourself aware of, you know, who really owns some of these brands can mm-hmm. help you figure out how to avoid them. Mm-hmm. You also write that you are trying to bridge information gaps between producers and consumers through eco-labels. What would you like to see on a label? Oh, when you talk to most consumers, they would want they want a lot more information they're getting now. I think a lot of people would like to see a super label that uh, embodies all of these these ethical ideals they want in their food. Uh, you know, not just organic and not having synthetic pesticides, but you know, a domestic version of fair trade, um, so that they know that the, the workers uh, receive adequate wages and, and decent working conditions, uh, humane treatment of animals. So there are. Uh, you know, these, these tiny little labels out there right now, they're starting to address some of those issues. And it's uh, because of all the things we've talked about before, about uh, distribution and how hard it is to get on store shelves. It's Right now, it's pretty hard to find labels other than organic and fair trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you know, they're going to have more and more success as, as uh, more people seek, seek those labels out. One of the big issues for consumers, every time I bring these topics up, the issue of cost comes up, right? So it's going to cost more to buy something that's produced by a smaller producer versus the conglomerate. How do you help consumers understand that a cheap price or a cheap cost at the supermarket may actually have a higher price? Uh, well, the, those cheap foods are heavily subsidized, um, so you know, they get a lot of direct government subsidies. Um, the companies that produce them are very powerful, and they're constantly changing the laws to, to make them even cheaper for them to produce. And then, you know, we as as taxpayers help subsidize those, um, and then we also, um, you know, subsidize them in terms of our poor health if we're buying cheap foods that are not as healthy for us as more expensive foods uh, than we pay in terms of uh, higher health costs and, and so on. So, uh, you know, I think one area to, to try and create change is to try and you know, reduce those subsidies uh, for the major players so that it's a more even playing field for uh, the small producers, the producers that are uh, selling healthier foods. You know, this is where we could really use an infographic, Dr. Howard. Don't you think? 
Yeah, definitely. Because I think that understanding, I, the way I look at some of the subsidies, I see it as a shell game. And so maybe the subsidies, the, the crop subsidies are less, but then the crop insurance payments are more. And helping consumers really see the farm bill visually, I think, could be enormously powerful. And I think Dan Imhoff has done a great job with Food Fight in helping us see some of those relationships. But just seeing how the money is switched around and then having concrete action steps to maybe make some changes, even with the eco-labels, you know, having having the information on the labels so that consumers can see, well, I am going to pay a little bit more, but look, I'm I'm making such a, such a good contribution to society. But you know what's going to happen when you suggest a, a new label, right? What's going to be the comeback? Well, that's going to cost more. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it- in Europe, uh, there, there was a proposal to put uh, a stoplight system on, on foods that were you know, red, green, yellow, depending on how healthy it was. And the soft drink industry spent just an enormous amount of money and stopped it in its tracks. Mm-hmm. One of the other infographics that you had on your website that I thought was fascinating, in addition to the individual foods, you had one on foodborne illness outbreaks. Yeah, there. Uh, I've actually uh, have a couple of those. Um, the first one I put together looked at the uh, E. coli outbreak in spinach back in 2006. And uh, you know what's fascinating about that is that until there was an FDA recall, we had no idea how many brands were coming out of just one processing plant. Um, typically, these are trade secrets, and, and Dole was the the brand that was implicated in this outbreak. It was actually a competitor, a direct competitor, Natural Selection Foods, that was packaging that Dole product. And they were also packaging for other competitors and a number of uh, private labels like supermarket brands, all in this one plant. And, uh, you know, ended up being shipped to 26 different states. And, you know, it was only because of this outbreak that we, that we knew how you know, consolidated just the production of this one food had become. Right. Yeah, one bad apple spoiled a whole lot of fruit. And you also have an infographic that I thought was fascinating about the egg recall. And you saw what where there were like two producers in Iowa that were producing eggs for the entire West Coast, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it actually uh, was distributed to 22 different states all throughout the Midwest and West Coast. Uh, there was actually half a billion, billion with a B, eggs that were recalled as a result of that salmonella outbreak in uh, 2010. And it was just two farms in the same county in Iowa uh, that had some contaminated feed. And, uh, you know, we had no idea that they were going to half a dozen different uh, repackagers, and these eggs were sold under dozens and dozens of different brands all across the country. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember I was on the press call when that outbreak first occurred, and the response from the FDA representative was, well, yeah, and it's not just going to be eggs. Anytime you consolidate like that, you can expect much larger outbreaks. So I think it's important for consumers to understand that that's part of the cost with consolidation and that idea of cheap food, you know, the 69-cent dozen eggs, it, it comes with a pretty big price. Yeah, definitely. Tell me what other infographics you personally really enjoyed putting together. Well, the latest one I put together uh, was a series of graphics on the wine industry. And I worked with uh, 
five graduate students on this project. And uh, I don't know if enjoy is the right word because it was uh, such a, a huge project to take on. We found, uh, we went to 20 different stores and actually wrote down every variety of wine we found on the shelves. And we ended up with more than 3,600 unique varieties just in those 20 stores. So then uh, we figured out who owned all those firms and uh, all those brands. And uh, there were more than 1,000 different firms, but it's a little deceptive. I mean, there's all this choice if you know where to go, but it's actually just three firms that control over half the sales of wine in the United States. And uh, that was surprising even to me before I started looking at that, that in the last few years because, you know, if you look on the shelves of your typical supermarket, and you'll find hundreds and hundreds of choices, and it would seem to be the one industry where you know, it's probably not consolidated. But in fact, these top five companies have well over 200 brands. So, you know, what appears to be all these uh, different choices from the, the cheap wines on the bottom shelves to the $100 plus bottles on the top shelves, a uh, huge majority are actually owned by those much smaller number of companies. Wow. You know, the thing that concerns me about consolidation, and I, I haven't seen it in uh, on your website, but I haven't, I may have missed it, and that is the narrowing of the genetic base of our food system. Do you know what I mean? So, so maybe because there are so few firms producing these foods that there would be less genetic variation, and I think with that we become less resilient as a population. Yeah, and the you know the, the crops and breeds themselves are also less resilient. It's a very narrow genetic base for something like turkeys in the United States. They've been bred to be raised in confinement, and there's a lot of concern that you know all it would take was it is you know a disease that that they're very susceptible to, and pretty much the entire uh, population of turkeys in the United States could be wiped out. The same for you know any number of uh, crops and livestock that you look at. Hmm. That's frightening, really. We don't realize just how vulnerable we are because it just seems like there's so many choices. And then you realize, no, there there isn't. So more power to the local producer who can keep things independent. I want to recommend that our listeners also check out a wonderful article that's available on your website. You published it in the journal Sustainability in 2009, and it was Visualizing Consolidation in the Global Seed Industry. But you talk about how the agricultural sector has been affected and why farmers were reluctant to just say no. Yeah, there's a, a, a visual that I have in the article, which is based on a, you know, a an old concept in agricultural economics, it's called the treadmill. Uh, and a lot of farmers, they get on this treadmill where the more they produce, uh, the lower the prices are, and then the more they have to continue to produce. So they, you know, uh, just like in Alice in Wonderland, they're just constantly, you know, getting bigger and producing more food just to make the same amount of income they had in the previous year. Uh, and that makes it very hard to say, say no to uh, all these changes that are occurring. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. I want to thank you so much for bringing to light these complicated issues. We've been speaking to Dr. Phil Howard. He's an associate professor of community food and agriculture at Michigan State University. His research focuses on visualizing the food system with terrific infographics. 
And in closing, I want to thank Dr. Howard, of course. I want to thank our listeners. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Howard, thank you for your refreshing look at the food system. Thanks for having me.